Next two weeks, we're going to talk about the topic, subject of forgiveness. Is that an issue to anyone? <laughs> There's like three honest people this morning, okay? We're going to talk about the topic of forgiveness. I'll tell you why. For the longest time, I have wanted to preach on this because, believe it or not, lots of emails, counseling sessions that I do and our staff does revolve around this issue of forgiveness at one point or another. And then four weeks ago when we started the series on the parable of the Good Samaritan, and first Sunday we delved a little bit into the topic of who do you hate? As a pastor, I was torn that there's like 70 people up front to say there is somebody that I hate. That's my neighbor. And I feel torn because one hand I'm thankful because they're honest, and the other hand I'm going, oh God. Lots of people who struggle in the area of anger, resentment, bitterness, forgiveness. Just to let you know, I grew up in a family where the person that I most like was awesome at holding grudges and terrible at forgiving. My mom held a grudge against her mother and did not speak nor see her for 15 years. And I saw firsthand up close what that does, not just to the person unwilling to forgive, but to everybody else around them. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. We're going to talk about it because forgiveness is a discipline, is a spiritual discipline that is at the heart of what it means to live as a Christian. Can you see why? But the problem is we didn't really talk about it. I've been preaching at this church for eight, now going on nine years, and I've talked about everything from A to Z. And yet, this is the first time I'm talking about forgiveness. We need to talk about forgiveness because you cannot live the Christian life well unless you know how to forgive. And we need to talk about it for some of us because we're not all perfect like you. I need to learn how to forgive better. I need to become more skilled at it. Actually, let me uh, go ahead and, and put this quote up there from Henry Nouwen. Forgiveness is the name of love practiced among people who love poorly. Anybody relate? The hard truth is that all people love poorly. We need to forgive and be forgiven every day, every hour increasingly. This is the great work of love among the fellowship of the weak that is the human family. Forgiveness. Here's why we struggle with it. Let me begin here. We have misunderstanding of what forgiveness is. For example, forgiveness is not condoning. Some people say, I have a hard time forgiving because if I forgive that person, will it mean that in some way I'm condoning what they've done or that what they did was, was okay? Forgiveness different from condoning. Two different things. Forgiveness, setting your heart free. Forgiveness, resolving not to live with bitterness, anger, resentment, and revenge. Forgiveness, different from condoning what they did. Secondly, forgiveness is also different from forgetting. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Sometimes people that hurt us will come to us and say something along the lines of, well, you need to just forgive and forget. Anybody ever been told that? And what they mean by that is this. What they mean by that is, well, you know, you just need to kind of forget about it and move on. But the problem is, if he has done this to you 11 times, it's okay 
to draw boundaries, strong boundaries, even as you forgive. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness may entail that we move out. Forgiveness may entail that we get a restraining order. Forgiveness may entail that we stay away from someone who is toxic, dangerous, manipulative. Are you with me? Forgiveness is not, eh, just forget. Forgiveness. And closely related to that, forgiveness is not justice and consequences. Please go ahead and call the police if somebody breaks into your house and steals something. Forgiveness is not, do you want my stereo too? Forgiveness may mean that you allow justice and the consequences of his or her actions to take its rightful end. You hear powerful stories of family members who have been wronged and their forgiveness of the perpetrator in no way entails that they not allow that perpetrator or the offender to face the consequences and the justice of his or her actions. Christians sometimes feel bad because they say, well, if this person is taken to court, should I feel terrible inside about the fact that I'm forgiveness is something that you do, even as you may allow the consequences of his or her actions to play itself out. Are you with me so far? Furthermore, forgiveness is also not reconciliation. This is hard for us Christians. Cassandra talked about reconciliation as well. Let me say this. Reconciliation, especially within the family of God, absolutely is the thing that we are called to pursue at all costs. Reconciliation. Reconciliation. At the end of the day, reconciliation is something that God calls all of us to pursue. But it's different from forgiveness. Why? Simple. Forgiveness is something that you can do on your own. Reconciliation takes two people. So sometimes Christians feel paralyzed and stuck because they're like, I need to forgive in their mind slash reconcile, but that other person will not move. Forgiveness is something that you do. Reconciliation requires two people. So reconciliation and forgiveness are two different things. You could forgive somebody, but that means that you may not go into business together again. You with me? You could forgive somebody, but it doesn't mean that things will go back to the way they were. It may, it may not. Forgiveness. What is forgiveness? And I, all of these could be sermons in and of themselves, but I'll delve into more of it next week as well. What is forgiveness? Let's start delving into Forgiveness is first and foremost personal. Forgiveness is personal. What do I mean? You forgive people. You don't forgive institutions and organizations and faceless, nameless entities. This is why I, when I talk to people who are very angry with the church, they say, I'm just angry at the church. And they feel paralyzed because they need to do something about it. Yet, how do you forgive an institution, a faceless, nameless entity? No, what you're saying is I need to forgive someone in that church, a pastor, a leader, small group someone wronged me in that church and forgiveness is about that person that group of people now some of you sit there and go wait a minute but peter aren't institutions capable of doing great harm don't we live in a society in which injustice can be carried out by institutions and the answer is yes so aren't you contradicting yourself no here's the reason why 
Even the process of forgiving an institution, that is, pursuing justice to, wrong, uh, to righting injustices, it requires that you forgive in your heart. Why? Miroslav Wolf said this, if you want justice and nothing but justice, you will get injustice. If you want true justice, you've got to have love. If you don't have love in your heart, and the anger, bitterness, and resentment has not been resolved. Please do me a favor and everyone else a favor. Do not pursue justice for justice' sake. Forgiveness is personal. Forgiveness also is a process. If at the end of the series, some of you guys walk away going, okay, I decided I'm not going to kill him. That's process. Okay. If you end of the sermon series, I could spend a week, I could spend a month on this too. I could spend a month on just about everything, right? We could delve into it, and, but we only have two weeks. By the end of two weeks, you walk away saying, I think I might be ready to be in the same room. That might be part of the process of forgiveness. See, the thing about forgiveness, do you realize how much of us are shaped for years sometimes by wrongs done to us. You realize how much of what we do in our lives is a response to something that happened a long time ago. Perhaps never got resolved. So how do you forgive overnight? That's like saying, be someone else overnight. And we're going, I can't. Days, weeks, and months, and years of that has shaped me. And so forgiveness, a process, might mean that you go all the way back and say, that happened. (laughs) You know, as I was preparing the sermon series, I had this thought going through my mind, like, do you really want to go there, Peter? Do you really want to go there? Because this may open up a whole can of worms. I'm just going to say this before we move on. I need all of us to be a community for each other like we have never been as we go through this. Because there will be people around you whose old wounds might be torn up as a result of what we talk about. And they cannot afford to remain alone through it. You hear me. Let's be the church. Forgiveness. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. You know what I realized? I realized that I love preaching messages where I get you guys all fired up and I hear amens and clap and preach, pastor. In the last month, it's been hammering away at a kind of message where people are like, and I realize I'm going to do the same thing for the next two weeks. I'm not going (laughs) to... Thanks, Kimmy. I'm not going to have people jumping up and down. Yes, truth. Because the reality is what we're going to talk about is deeply, deeply sensitive. And I want to be sensitive. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. This may sound familiar to you. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, How many times, Lord, shall I forgive my brother or my sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. Apparently, Peter had been wronged by somebody. And Jesus begins talking about this topic of forgiveness. And Peter says something in which he betrays a sense of confusion about what forgiveness is. What do I mean? Peter thinks forgiveness is for the benefit 
of the offender. Peter thinks forgiveness is for the benefit of the offender. In other words, Peter thinks, you know what? When I forgive, I want to do something nice for the person that's hurt me. I want to do something nice for them. And so I'll forgive Jesus, but uh, how many times shall I forgive them so they can go on with their lives? One of the most misconceptions we have about forgiveness is that we think it's for the benefit of the offender. So what do we do? We wait. And we wait. We wait for that person to acknowledge the fact that they've wronged us. We wait. We wait. Forgiveness, benefit of them. We wait for them to come and say, I'm sorry for what I've done. I realize that I've hurt you. And so we wait. And we wait. Now, here's the problem. Oftentimes, the people that offended or hurt us don't even know that they offended and hurt you. They're walking around oblivious to the fact. And yet, if you're going, it's for the, what do you, and then some people, ooh, this is hard. They do know, but they could care less. Anybody? Anybody? And you just seethe inside because you're saying, I want to forgive you. I want to forgive you, and I need you. Well, we think forgiveness for the benefit of the offender. Here's, if you don't get anything else from this series, get this. Forgiveness is not for the benefit of the offender. Forgiveness is what for? You. Forgiveness is not for the benefit of those who hurt us. Forgiveness is for the benefit of who? It's for us. Are there some good that comes relationally when you forgive? Absolutely. But forgiveness ultimately is about us and what it does to us and our hearts and our souls and our well-being. Peter's misunderstanding is a misunderstanding a lot of us carry. He thinks it's for them. Hence the question, how many times? Because there's a limit to this, you know. I'm going to do them a favor. I'm going to be nice to them. I'm going to let them off the hook. But I can't do it forever, Jesus. How many times? Now, here's the reason why we think that. When we're hurt or when we're injured, when somebody takes credit for our ideas, when somebody hurts us emotionally, when we're wounded, when somebody really, really wrongs you, there's a sense of loss. There's a sense of loss. Like we've lost face. We lost reputation. We've lost an opportunity that may never come back. Or we use this language. We feel robbed. I have people in their 20s that come to me and go, I feel robbed of my childhood because I never had a father. I feel robbed of the opportunity to have a mother. I feel ro- we feel robbed. feel as though something is taken from us and there's this deep sense of loss. And so we establish and develop this debtor thing inside of us, a debtor relationship. Like they owe us a debt. That's why what we say when we say, you Owe me. What? An apology. Why do we say that? Why do we say to somebody, you owe me an apology? Because when somebody wrongs us, there's a deep sense of loss, deep sense in which we've been robbed, and there's this debt that develops. And we say, you owe me. There's this debt thing that needs to be cleared. And that's why we feel justified in our anger. Because we say, I was just hanging out, doing my own thing. He came along and you slashed me emotionally and he hurt me physically. Now there's this debt that has to be paid. And we hold on to it. There are various ways that Christians respond. I'll tell you one of the ways I respond to this debt. I have imaginary conversations with a person. <laughs> Raise your hand if you have this imaginary conversation. Okay, you know what I'm talking about, right? In your mind, in your mind, see all of you are laughing smiling, see? You're going, how is he in my head right now? This is human nature. We 
imaginary con- and in my mind when somebody wrongs me I have these imaginary conversations with that person right and it's not never just me and him or me and her there's other people around right it's, and I, it's a perfect conversation and I set them up for the perfect question they ask and I go aha <laughs> and I just let them have it and what do they do they break down and they get on their knees and they go I'm so sorry I've done that and other people around them are like yeah Am I the only one? We have these imaginary conversations in our minds. And we just, why? There's this debt and finally they paid it. Some of us are told, oh, you just need to repress it. After all, that's what a good Christian does. Christians don't feel that. A good Christian ought to not feel that. So what do you do? You Repress it, you repress it, you repress it. Some of you have been told, good Christians won't think that, won't feel that, won't. And what do you do? You just shove it and stuff it and shove it and stuff it. A lot of times, utter depression. Anger unresolved, utter depression. Some of us, and I'm going to go on, because I can go on and list 10 ways that we respond. Some of us do the whole, I'm going to share it as a prayer request. And it's a subtle way of having them pay. Because literally, can we just be honest? It winds up being slander and gossip. That's all it is. Can you all pray for me? Sure, what is it? And you go on for 20 minutes. And everybody's sitting there going, here we go all over again. Unresolved anger. Since in which a debt is owed. A loss. And so regardless how we respond, we feel this tremendous sense in which people owe you and owe me. So we hold on to this anger. We feel justified in our anger. We feel like we have the right to be angry. And if anybody, God forbid, has the audacity to come to you and me and go, you need to forgive. What? Forgive? They owe me. There's a debt that needs to be paid. I, I may, if they come, if they come and ask me forgiveness, but until then, I'm holding on to resentment, I'm holding on to anger, I'm not going to initiate. After all, I'm the victim. And we completely miss this principle. The forgiveness is not for the benefit of the offender. It's for us. Is this hard? Does it make sense? Jesus goes on, verse 22. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times, which was another way of saying without limits. Now, that's a big problem, isn't it, if the forgiveness is for the benefit of the offender? Because Jesus is saying, you need to do it without limits. Jesus, that's being awfully insensitive. And Jesus would have said, but forgiveness is not for them. It's for Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, he tells a parable story. He's like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. I, you know, I love the fact that Jesus does this. Somebody asks a question. He never answers it directly. You ever notice that? Somebody asks a question. She's always like, let me tell you a story. And most of the time, people are like, I have no idea what the heck he's talking about. <laughs> 24, as he began the settlement, a king 
Settle accounts. As being a settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. By the way, the amount of debt is incredibly important. Here's why. Math people, I'm going to quiz you in, one, in five seconds. One denarii is one day's wages. 6,000 denarius made up one talent. This debt is 10,000 talents. So how many days of wages are we talking about? 60. I was going to say Asians, how many? But, you know, that's an old joke. I used that like three weeks ago. We're talking about 60 million days of work. Why is that significant? First of all, Jesus' audience, audience is like, that's a lot of money. Yeah, it is. Secondly, the parable tells of the story, we'll see, not the difference between a large sum of debt versus a small sum of debt. The story is about an unpayable debt versus a small debt. It's the difference between an unpayable, there's nothing you can do to pay it versus a small. Not, well, if we work really, really hard, an unpayable debt, small debt. The other thing, and, and we'll delve into this more next week. The other thing is when you think of a servant, because if you're paying attention, you're going, a servant? That's a lot of money. How does a cook make so much money? How does a... The answer is it's not a cook. When we hear the word servant, it's not a cook or a gardener or somebody that's manual labor in the house. This servant was most likely a governor or a regional king, a vassal king under the rule of the emperor. At this time, there were no public funds. Caesar owns everything. And Caesar gives money to his regional vassals, regional uh, uh, kings, if you will, for them to carry out his wishes there. This servant has just wasted through either corruption or mismanagement, we'll find out next week, a sum of money that he can't pay back. And what does the king do? Verse 24. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all he had been sold to repay the debt. At this, a servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But that same servant went out. And he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which is, guys, a hundred days of work. Three months. Three months. He grabbed him and he began to choke him. This is comical, tragically, for me. This friend hasn't even had a word to say yet. You notice. He just sees him and he begins choking him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. And his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. Does this sound familiar? Does this sound familiar? It's the exact same conversation this guy had with the king. 
But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had same mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? Next week, we're going to delve more into this. But this is what the king is saying king is looking at the servant saying look the way i dealt with you i no longer dealt with you from a bookkeeping approach i didn't deal with you from a record keeping approach what do you do your whole approach to life is one of bookkeeping. Your whole approach to life is one of record keeping of what people have done, what they have said. And Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 comes along and says, and love keeps no record of wrongs. God doesn't deal with us from a record-keeping approach. We approach life by keeping a record. And if we really today, in our record-keeping, saw all the things that we do to God that deserves grace, mercy versus punishment. And compare that record-keeping with God to our record-keeping of others. Are you tracking? Uh, yeah, more next week. In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured till he should pay back all he owned. How long is that going to be? And here's a verse I just like to erase from the Bible altogether. This is how my heavenly Father will treat you and me unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. And Peter's standing there going, stupid me. Should have never asked the question. <laughs> Which is how I feel many times. You guys are tough, so let's get to the hardest part of the parable first, shall we? The hardest part of the parable is what we just ended right now. Because at the end of this account, the unforgiving servant is not just thrown into jail, he is tortured. And just to make sure that we get the point, Jesus says, this is how my heavenly father, yes, your loving, gracious, merciful God, will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or your sister from the heart. Jesus is literally saying an unforgiving heart will lead to eternal punishment. And we say, wait a minute, Peter. You're constantly preaching the gospel. How 
what we do or don't do doesn't depend on whether we go to heaven or doomed to eternal punishment, but it's by the grace and mercy of God. Are you not contradicting yourself by saying, if we don't forgive, we are doomed to eternal punishment? That's not what Jesus is saying, is he? Because one of the ways that you can tell what Jesus is saying is a parallel passage just a little later in the book of Matthew 25, where Jesus is looking down on Judgment Day, and we would spent a month on this, so it sounds familiar. Jesus, spent, Jesus is looking down on Matthew 25 at the Judgment Day, and he's saying, you didn't feed the hungry, you didn't feed the poor, you didn't clothe the naked, you didn't shelter the homeless, so therefore go into eternal punishment. And people are very upset that they're being doomed to eternal punishment. They say, whoa, 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 whoa. When did we see you hungry, naked? And Jesus says, what you did to them, you did to what? Me. His point, when you closed your heart to the poor, it proved and showed that you had closed your heart to me. Same parallel passage, except this is a lot harder for us today. Why? Because what the king is saying is the fact that you did not open your heart in mercy to that other servant proved that you had not really opened your heart to my mercy. Let me put it up this way, principle. Forgiveness not shown is forgiveness not known. If you don't forgive your brother, your sister, or your neighbor... Jesus is saying that is a sign that you've never really opened your heart to my grace. What Jesus says is there's absolutely no better way to tell whether someone has truly encountered the grace of God than whether he or she forgives. What's the gospel? You were forgiven an unpayable debt. An infinite debt. What's the gospel? God says, I no longer deal with you by keeping record. I no longer deal with you bookkeeping way. And if you've truly experienced and encountered my grace, you also do away with record keeping and extend forgiveness. The evidence that you believe the gospel is not just that you receive forgiveness, but you're willing to give it. There is no better way, a better sign of the spiritual condition of our hearts. There's no better sign of whether you're really going in your eternal destiny than whether you forgive. So here's what it says. Literally, if you say that you believe the gospel and yet you hold a grudge, if you say that you believe the gospel and you're unwilling to forgive, at the very least, you are blocking the effect of God's grace in your life. And at worst, you say you believe the gospel but you really don't. It may come sooner. It may come later. But a heart that's experienced grace, truly, will forgive. Is this hard? Is this hard? I'm asking you. Talk to me. Is this hard? How many of you just want to walk out right now Hang in there. Hang in there. Why? Here's why. 
and this week and next week. I'm going to talk about this week just to, just to raise the tension some more as if it's not high yet. I'm going to crank the screw some more, okay? I'm going to device. And you're going to feel like, why is he squeezing me? Because here's the flip side of when you don't forgive. Here's what happens. It's interesting that the whole parable takes place in the context of a prison. Why? Here's what I think it's saying. Spiritually speaking, when you don't forgive somebody, you're choosing to be for the rest of your life in prison. Prison of hate. And bitterness. Spiritually speaking, Jesus is saying, when you don't forgive, you are choosing to be held a prisoner of anger, hate, bitterness. Spiritually speaking, Jesus says, it is a matter of life or death. The human heart was not created to be a container of hate, anger, and resentment. Your heart cannot sustain Days, weeks, and months of containing with it hate, anger, bitterness, resentment. Frederick Buechner, Buechner, does anybody know how to spell this guy's name, pronounce this guy's name? Buechner, Michael Buechner, Frederick Buechner. He says this. He's an American, but I'm going to kind of read it in old English, okay? I'm just kidding. He says, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor the last toothsome morsel, both the pain you're given and the pain you are giving back in many ways is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. It's saying it's killing your soul. Why? couple scripture passages, okay? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. It says, and don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. You wonder whether God has emotions? He has deep emotions. Here's one way that he is grieved. Ready? Get rid of. Command. Not a suggestion. Not a, you know, if you want to. Command. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Here's what he's saying. You've got to get rid of bitterness and replace it with forgiveness. It's a must. It's a must. It's a must. Why is it so strong? One other passage. Acts chapter 8, verse 23. Apostle Peter is talking to a guy named Simon, the sorcerer. And he says, for I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. When you forgive, you are set free. When you don't forgive, you're held captive. And resign yourself to being held in prison of anger. heard a story about a guy. A pastor of a, a local community was doing vacation Bible school. And he invited the neighborhood kids to be able to come and, and do the Bible school. Well, the, the guy that lived, his neighbor, literally next door, 
had two kids that were perfect for this vacation Bible school, but would not sign up for it. So the pastor went to him and said, we're doing this great Bible study, vacation Bible study. Your kids would benefit from it. Why don't you come? To which the guy said this. He said, when I was young, my parents forced me to go to church, and they shoved that religion down my throat. And I promise that I will never do that again to my kids. So no thank you. We are not sending our kids. 10, 20, 30 years later, the guy is still held captive to his father. No, 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 but but he's doing the opposite of what his dad did. Precisely. He is being held captive to his father. His father is controlling his behavior 20, 30 years later. See, here's the thing about bitterness that I've learned. I don't know about you. I've learned. Bitterness has this way of giving us an illusion of power and control. Here's what I mean. When I stay angry at somebody, I have this in my mind imagery. I'm staying angry at that person, in that moment, at that time. You guys know what I'm talking about? And I hold that person captive to that. And I go, you're not moving from that. Remember how you hurt me? Remember how you angered me? Remember, I'm going to hold you to that. And we feel like in our mind, illusion of power and control. We trap that person in the past. The problem is, the only person that's trapped in the past is who? Is you. That person, if they genuinely seek forgiveness, whether you grant it or not, they're free. And when you hold that person to that thing that they did in the past and you go, I'm not going to let you move on with your life, the only person that's not moving on with your life is who? It's you and it's me. This is why forgiveness is not for the benefit of the offender. Forgiveness for the benefit of you and me and us being set free. What does bitterness do? I'm going to, like I said, I'm turning the vice a little bit. And then next week, gospel resolution. God, don't you love it how I do that? Bitterness. Look at, listen. Bitterness destroys relationships. What do I mean? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, make every effort to live at peace with everyone and to be holy. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root, I'm going to talk about this more next week, grows up to cause trouble and defile who? Defile many. Do you know that you can't just be bitter towards one person? You can't compartmentalize a corrosive emotion like bitterness and say, it's going to stay right here. Bitterness seeps out and begins to affect everyone around you and everyone around me. It clogs the arteries and it blocks and hardens your heart. And you become incapable of loving people who love you and are around you. Do you know how many marriages I've counseled? where the wife or the husband is angry, bitter at somebody sometime, and it is destroying their marriage. Bitterness cannot be contained just to you. Bitterness is the enemy of love because it makes you unforgiving and unwilling to love unconditionally. That's why when you and I don't forgive, 
other people around you will suffer. Can I just give you a suggestion, a brief advice? If you ever want to get married and you feel comfortable with asking this question at a dinner because you're serious about that relationship, I want you to look at him or her in the eye and ask this question, is there anybody in your life that you haven't forgiven? Because I don't need you to carry that into this relationship. From one to another to another. Bitterness destroys our relationships. Secondly, bitterness impairs our judgment. What do I mean? Do you know that when you're bitter and your soul becomes toxic, you become blind? Who? Blind to love. And you can't see people around you who love you. How many of you have seen that? Ever see a really bitter, unforgiving person? And they say stuff like, I feel all alone. Nobody loves me. Nobody cares about me. They go on and you're going, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm here. We're here. We're all there for you. And yet you can't see it. When your soul is toxic, you become blind. Even to people around you who love you, who care for you, who are there for you. Bitterness also affects our relationship with God. Do you know why? When you're bitter... You trust nobody but yourself. That's why it's the enemy of faith. Bitterness is the enemy of faith because you trust nobody but yourself. Bitterness impairs our judgment. Third, bitterness skews our perspective. I said this a little earlier. Bitterness holds you captive to the past. Bitterness is the enemy of hope, and we can't live without hope. Because you keep living in the past and you become incapable of seeing a better future. Bitterness is the graveyard for hope. Bitterness forces you to relive that moment again and again and again and again and keep living there, which makes it impossible for you to see a better tomorrow. By the way, this is also a good way to tell whether your life perspective is that one of glasses half full or glasses half empty. I don't think it's just about temperament. You know what I like to say to myself under my breath when I get stuck in a rut? I go, Peter, what do you deserve? And I have these conversations with me, you know. <laughs> what do you mean, what do I deserve? Oh, no, what do you deserve? And eventually... When I'm humble enough and realistic enough, answer, nothing. All of life is a gift of grace. All of life is a gift of grace. Four, bitterness circumvents the healing process. Unwillingness to forgive will circumvent the process of becoming whole. Brokenness, I've seen this over and over again, is perpetuated by bitterness. What do I mean? Bitterness may not necessarily cause brokenness, but bitterness perpetuates the brokenness and makes it hard for you to heal and become whole. If you're bitter and angry and resentful and can't forgive, you cannot become whole. It is critical Critical, critical. You know, see, part of the reason why, why I think God is so, and the scriptures talk so much about this, is, 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 is he loves you and me. You know, let me give you this analogy, you know. It's like, because he knows 
how we're created. And because he knows what bitterness, anger, resentment, and unforgiving spirit will do to us, because he knows that it'll lead to self-destruction, God says, don't. Hold on to it. Forgive. I was a youth pastor for seven, eight years. You know what I saw? You know what I saw, Tom? I saw 16, 17-year-olds maiming themselves, hurting themselves, doing all kinds of things to destroy literally themselves. And you know why they did that? They would cry and they'd say, My mom! My dad! Their angry resentment towards their parents is leading to self-destruction. I saw this up close, life after life after life after life. And I can't tell you how helpless and how sad and broken I felt as I saw people destroying themselves because they're angry at somebody else. And God comes along and says, for your sake. For your sake. Here's why we need to come to grips with this. Okay? This is going to be the last really hard thing I'll say before I pick it up next week. See, in, in a few days, Jesus knew something was going to happen where he was going to do a preemptive strike to all of our justifications for why we weren't going to forgive. I'm going to say this gently and yet firmly. Because on the cross... Every single one of us in this room lost our right to refuse to forgive. I have a right. I'm the victim. Jesus says on the cross, every single one of us lost our right to refuse to forgive. Why? Why? Because God knew something about you and me already. What did God know already? God already knew that we would worship false gods while giving lip service to our allegiance. God already knew about you and me. What did God know? God already knew that we would make promises to do better the next day, break that promise. God already knew that we would not husbands love our wives as Christ loved the church. God already knew, wives, that we would not love our husbands as Christ loved the church. God already knew that we would be capable of and indeed commit acts of racism, injustice, evil. God already knew that we wouldn't be generous with our resources, that we would be selfish and hoard things. God already knew. And it's in the shadow of the cross, it's in the shadow of the cross that you and I lost our right to forgive. The kingdom comes with it limitless grace in the midst of an evil world. But with it also comes limitless demand. Let me say that once more. The kingdom comes with it, limitless grace in the midst of an evil world. But the kingdom also comes with it, limitless demand. If you are saved by grace, there's nothing that God cannot ask of you. Yeah, but you don't know what he's done. He does. And he's never asked you to do. Never asked you to go beyond 
never asked you to go above and beyond what he was wanting. He never asked you to die for anybody. He just says, forgive. Forgive in light of the cross. Have you forgotten the mercy that has been shown to you? Are you and I still treating people from a bookkeeping, record-keeping approach to life? Jesus says, take the same mercy that I showed you and show it to others. Not because they deserve it. But they don't deserve it. Of course they don't. That's not what mercy is. Mercy is not giving somebody what they deserve. Mercy is giving somebody what they don't deserve, which is what we received. And we have to change our attitude of saying, I want mercy for me and justice for him. I want to have it both ways. Mercy for me, justice for you. Jesus says, you can't. You want mercy? You got to extend mercy. Okay, okay. I'm going to say two things and then we're done. Two things, just kind of whet your appetites and also have you agonize over this this whole week. How do we forgive? How do we forgive? Really quick, listen. Everybody, please look up here. Two minutes, I'm not. First of all, you got to identify what it is that's been taken away from you. What do I mean? We hurt generally, so we try and forgive generally. Do you know what I mean? You know what I'm talking about? I've forgiven him. Okay, why are you talking like that? I've forgiven him. What, 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 what? Why? If you've forgiven him, are you? Because what? I don't want to talk about it. What? Have you? For... I don't want to talk about it. I've forgiven him. Why? We hurt generally, and we forgive generally. I got the... yeah. You've got to identify what it is that's been taken. What do you think he owes you? What do you think she owes you? What do you think that's been robbed? And for some of us, this is so hard because you know what this means? This means we are reliving our memories of going, oh, he took that. She took that. I've never admitted it to myself, to anybody. I've never even said it out loud. We have to identify. Secondly, you got to choose forgiveness. What do I mean? Everybody, please look up here. Look up here. Look up here. Look up here. Please, please. Nothing to look at up here. Please, everybody look up here. You have to, what do I mean? Forgiveness is not a feeling. You don't feel your way towards forgiveness. You forgive and the feelings follow. Listen to me, please. I beg you. I'm so, I, this is a shock to your system right now because of what our culture has said. Because we think, I feel better. My anger recedes. I feel like forgiving. Then I will. The Bible says, you forgive. Then the anger will recede. You forgive. Choose to. You didn't know that, did you? I'm waiting to feel better. And you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you're waiting. I'm not, why am I not feeling better? I'm waiting, I'm waiting, God says. Mark chapter 14, Jesus says, when you come before God, and you have anything against your brother or sister, forgive him first, and then offer you a gift. Why would he say that if forgiveness is not an act of the will? After which the feelings follow. Do you know why forgiveness is hard? Because forgiveness doesn't mean that we forget. If I could just forget about what happened to memories. And some people think God just forgets our sins. God doesn't forget our sins. God chooses to not remember. And love. 
How many of you in here today, right now as you're sitting, are going, I need to be set free. I want you to stand up. Come on, 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 I'm going to wait, I'm going to wait until, is there anybody else? Those of you that are standing, I literally join you because there's issues in my life that needs to get resolved. The first step is acknowledging this, and I so commend you. What I'm going to do next is I'm just going to ask our brothers and our sisters around you. You may not even be a Christian here this morning. That's okay. That's okay. Brothers, sisters here this morning, to just stand next to you, stand behind you, stand around you, and just pray a prayer that I'm going to pray, okay? So right now, if you guys can do that. And as you're standing and have your hands on that brother, that sister, that man, woman that stood, I'm just going to pray this prayer. And those of you that stood, just repeat it in your heart. You don't have to say it out. Just repeat it in your heart and make it your own. And the people that are standing next to you, they're just laying their hands on you just to agree. They're literally amening. Pray this prayer in your heart. Father, thank you for paying down my debt, an unpayable debt, an unpayable sum. Thank you for being done away with a record keeping approach to me. Thank you for the cross. And God, now I pray that you would help me because I am incapable of doing this on my own. I cannot do this on my own. I need you, Holy Spirit, living inside of me to do it for me and through me. Help me to choose to forgive. Help me to decide to set them 
free. Help me to choose the way of Jesus. For those of you that are standing and have stood, I want to give you a moment right now, just a few seconds, to see if you would have enough courage to identify who it is and what it is that's been taken, that's been lost. Here's how we're going to end this service. If we could all stand, those of you that might be sitting, if you just stand. I want you to know that Pastor Michael, myself, as well as some of our leaders will be up front, prayer team, want to be here all day if it takes to pray with and for you if you would like a further step and get some more prayer and pray with people we are going to be here we're not going anywhere I'm going to pray this prayer God as we leave this place may we be agents of healing of restoration of reconciliation May we be agents, God, whose lives will reflect the grace and mercy that was shown unto us, that we would extend the same mercy and grace to those around us, that they would witness the power of the gospel. It is the Holy Spirit that goes before you, behind you, and beside you, son, daughter, child of God. He loves you with an eternal love. Amen and amen.
Break my heart for what breaks yours Everything I am for your kingdom's cause As I walk from earth into eternity Heal my heart my heart and make it clean. Open up my eyes to the things unseen. Show me how to love like you. For those of you who want to go, you you're released to go. We'll have time of ministry. There'll be folks here to pray for you. As you leave, there are men and women um, at the exits with with an, um, breaking with um, with with flyers. Thank you, Daniel. With flyers for you to get information on particular ways for us to Jansen, bring me. Thank you because I hadn't seen it. If you want to get information to stand up as a church to help us to embody um, the call of Christ in regards to supporting foreclosure relief in the neighborhood and in the city of Chicago, there are flyers for you. Make sure you get one. There are folks standing at the exit doors. Otherwise, you're able to go. If you need prayer, we're here to pray for you.